Hi, everybody, and welcome to Kremlin File. And today we have a very, very special guest. His name is David Kramer. And David was Foreign Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the George W. Bush administration. He was also former president of Freedom House, director of European Eurasian Studies, senior fellow in the Baklav Havel Program for Human Rights and Diplomacy. Also, member of the Task Force on U.S. Strategy for Support of Democracy and Counter Authoritarianism. So this is absolutely incredible because he's had, a, on, let's say, a lifetime of defending you know, democracy. And this is what we actually need right now. Extremely, extremely Absolutely. Important. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, he was also the Senior Director for Human um, rights and human freedom in the McCain Institute. And, you know, as we all know, oh. McCain was a very big champion yep. of human rights and democracies around the globe. I was really struck by a lot of his work that he did at Freedom House because I know that Freedom House, um, they surveil, they also do a lot of, uh, they gather a lot of information on the state of democracy in the world, which is extremely important to see where there's a backsliding of democratic institutions and democratic norms. I think without any further ado, why don't we no, say hi to, to David and welcome him to Kremlin Fire. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's just jump in, okay, really, all right, into some questions that we would like uh, on, let's say, a few years back. Okay. In your extensive experience as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasia, and you had responsibilities for Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Moldova. This is just to remind everyone. Uh, you were instrumental in the U.S. response to the Russian invasion into Georgia in 2008. What was your experience during that time? And how has it shaped your dealings with Russia since? So I, I had uh, joined the State Department in the Bush administration and um, was in several previous positions before I took on that position that you mentioned. And increasingly, I think, came became uh, aware of the growing challenge that we faced from, from the yes. Putin regime. Um, early on in the Bush administration, as we all may recall, President Putin was one of the first leaders to call President Bush on 9-11, um, mm-hmm. He and President yeah. Bush had had a summit in Ljubljana um, in, in the summer of 2001 before 9-11. And that's when President Bush, of course, famously referred to looking into President Putin's eyes and getting mm-hmm. a sense of his soul. Um, but the relationship started to become strained throughout mm. the 2000s. Mm. And by the time of Russia's invasion of Georgia, I actually had already moved on to a different position within the State mm. Department. Okay. Overseas, a fierce battle broke out today on the fringe of the former Soviet Union. Tonight, Secretary of State Rice is calling on Russia to end its assault on the Republic of Georgia, now a U.S. ally. But based on my experience, um, I-, I was not surprised Mm-hmm. Um, though I think a, a lot of people were, I, I, I won't say that I had predicted it, but it indicated to me that Mr. Putin was prepared to undertake any measures necessary wow. in order to deal with what he viewed as challenges along his border, as well as within his borders. 
Okay. Okay. Actually, at the time, Senator McCain, your former boss, right, famously said, we are all Georgians. Okay. What do you think he meant by that? Right. What and has this actually held up over time? I I think it was a bit of a paraphrase of President Kennedy when he said, Ich bin ein Berliner, Mm. uh, basically trying to say we're we're all in this together. It was a way for Senator McCain to say that we feel the pain of Georgians as they were facing assault from Russian tanks and, and planes and helicopters. Um, and I think it was a way to indicate American support and solidarity for Georgia during this difficult time. Right. Um, it, it, remember that in August of 2008, this was just a few months before the U.S. presidential election. And I think Senator mm, McCain, yeah. who was a candidate then against Senator Obama, um, was trying to strike a harder line toward dealing with Putin mm. and the threat that he perceived. And it did become a bit of a competition between Senator McCain and Senator Obama on who could stake out a tougher line. Well, I was interested in Senator Obama's reaction to the Russian aggression against Georgia. His first statement was both sides ought to show restraint. Again, a little bit of naivete there. He doesn't understand that Russia committed serious aggression against Georgia. No, actually, I think Senator McCain and I uh, agree uh, for the most part on uh, these issues. Obviously, I disagree with this notion that somehow uh, we did not forcefully uh, object to Russians uh, going into Georgia. I immediately said that this was illegal and objectionable. Um, That, of course, changed after the U.S. election when Senator Obama became President Obama. Um, and then followed through on his on his reset policy. Okay, actually, speaking a little more about Senator No McCain, uh, for those of us who monitor the threat, you know that is posed by the Kremlin, his absence. I mean, we really miss. Okay, his absence is we can feel it. Okay, every day. Yeah. Is there anyone the in world. government that you see? who can we can look to to fill the shoes of the senator, let's say, in this space? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a great question because I think we've seen an interesting dynamic over the past four, five, six years. Republicans tended to be more hawkish on foreign policy right. and toward Russia in particular. Um, or to the Putin regime in particular. I I won't say Democrats were doves by comparison, but they did seem more open and prone toward extending a hand to Moscow to try to work with the Russian government. Um, That kind of flipped um, during the Trump administration, Mm. where Mm. the more hawkish side became the Democrats and the, the softer side became the Republicans. That said... Um, I would say that there are members on both sides of the aisle who I think have had a healthy skepticism, if not um, a, a pretty negative view toward what Putin has been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, they, that would include, I think, Senator Cardin, uh, Senator yep. Ben Cardin from Maryland, who currently chairs the U.S. Helsinki Commission um, and has been a, a strong leader and advocate on human rights. He and Senator McCain, in fact, 
played key roles in passage of the Sergei Magnitsky Rule of Law and Accountability mm-hmm. Act in That's 2012. Right. Yep. Um, Senator, uh, uh, Senator Shaheen, I think, has been very good on this. Um, Senator Rubio has taken a tough line when mm-hmm. it comes to, to Russia. Um, but, but I'm not sure any of them is necessarily looking to follow the path of Senator McCain. He was a unique individual. Mm-hmm. On the House side, I, I yes. will mention uh, Congressman Kinzinger, uh, mm. I think, has, has staked out a, a very clear position when it comes to dealing with the Putin regime. Um, Congressman McGovern, uh, who chairs the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission, has been terrific as well. Great. So so there are a number of members, again, both sides of the, of the yeah. political yeah. aisle, who yeah. I think um, do have a good understanding of the threat and challenge uh, posed by, by Mr. Putin. Yeah, both sides are needed in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I don't think, yeah, I absolutely. don't think it's just one one party or the other, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, David, so going back to Georgia, 2008, we watched Russia invade Georgia. Um, since then, we have seen Russia invade Ukraine. We have seen ongoing attacks in basically a full hybrid war launched against the U.S., we saw the atrocities that the Russians helped Assad commit in Syria. And I mean, their involvement in, in pretty much every single election in Europe. If Putin would have been stopped back then, do you mm. think a lot of this could have been avoided? Um, I, I do wish that we had taken a harder line earlier. Um, I, I would even go back, Olga, to... to um, uh, the spring of 2007, when Russia mm. launched a massive cyber attack against yes. Estonia, Estonia. Um, that was the first real challenge to a NATO member state. Estonia became yeah. a, me- a member of NATO in 2004, yeah. and NATO was not prepared to respond to a cyber attack. Article 5, no. which comes with NATO membership, Article 5 in the NATO Charter, says an attack on one is considered an attack on all. Um, If Estonia had said, we have just been attacked, I'm not sure what NATO would have done. Estonia didn't say that because I think they were worried that if they did issue that statement, that it would not be backed up by NATO allies. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't do much in response to that attack. There were no sanctions imposed. Uh, There was no real pushback. We did help Estonia beef up its cybersecurity, and Estonia is one of the leaders now when it comes to cyber issues. Um, But uh, you could even go back further um, Hmm. to the uh, murder of Anna Politkovskaya in October of 2006, I think not coincidentally on Putin's birthday. I think that was deliberate. Um, And then followed soon after by the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, who had been a KGB officer, um, but then uh, sought asylum in the UK and London and was poisoned with polonium, a radioactive substance, um, yep. in a London hotel and died a few weeks later, a, a terrible, yep. Yep. painful death. We didn't do anything yeah. in response to that either. And, yeah. and so I think there is sadly a, a, a litany of, of cases one could cite where Putin really pushed the envelope and we didn't push back. And that emboldened him to think, okay, I got away with the poisoning of uh, of a former spy in London. Again, another member out with a banned radioactive substance. And then Estonia 
then Georgia, um, then Ukraine. But in between Ukraine, I think it is important and worth pointing out um, when President Obama said he was drawing a red line on Syria if Assad was going to use chemical weapons and then didn't follow through on his uh, warning and threat. Putin again saw an opening for, for Ukraine. In 2014, he moved. Um, and then since then, of course, we've seen, as you said, the situation in Syria, um, interference in our elections, cyber and ransomware attacks. The list goes on and on. And, yeah. and it seems to yeah. me we're not doing enough to push back. The scale of human rights crimes that, you yeah. know, is committed by that regime I mean, it's unspeakable, you yeah. know, and I definitely should be factored into the foreign policy by Western, you know, leaders. Yeah, which they Agreed. don't do, which is not right. there, right? Human rights is right. not factored in at all. It, it you know, it, it's not unique to Russia in our U.S. foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, there tend to be, at a risk of oversimplifying, three basket of issues and interests that the United States has. Okay. Um, security, uh, economic and energy interests, but then the normative side, the democracy and human rights basket. And sadly, I know this from my own experience in, in state, even with President Bush emphasizing the freedom agenda, the democracy human rights basket often gets shortchanged throughout, mm. throughout the years, not just in one yeah. administration. Yeah. And and that, I think, has been been true in the case of, of dealing with with Russia. Yeah. Uh, the, the reset policy, in my view, did uh, put not completely to the side, but but did minimize democracy and human rights concerns at a time when the situation was getting worse inside Russia. And there was emphasis on uh, the new START treaty, which got signed. There was emphasis on getting Russia into the WTO cooperation on Afghanistan and, of course, dealing with the Iranian nuclear threat. And those are important issues. But just to pick up on your point, it also seems to me no less important uh, our democracy and human rights concerns, our our values, our universal values, not just our values, universal values. Absolutely. And and they get shortchanged. Yeah, we're with you on this one, 100%. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's it's just not the U.S. either. In the EU, we have the same situation going on. 100%. This is why, right, when we talk about these things, Olga and I actually say the West, because this is what is happening. No, and and with uh, with Putin pushing, you know, the line, like David said, uh, using new uh, chemical weapons on foreign soil. I mean, you know, we saw it with Livinenko. We saw it with Skripal. I mean, we saw the Czech bombings where you had two Czech citizens die during the Skripal poisoning using uh, Novichok. You know, a British citizen died. By by the same guys who who likely were involved in the Novichok poisoning of Exactly. Exactly. And Catalonia. And Catalonia. Sometimes they use the old fashioned way of guns, just shooting people down in, in the middle of Berlin um, or, yeah. mm-hmm. or in Vienna. So mm-hmm. it isn't just with banned substances, but uh, they, it, it, they do it, though, in part because they think they can get away with it. Um, and they too. I mean, Dmitry Lugovoy, remember, was promoted mm-hmm. into the Russian parliament. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, so he got an award know, when he got home. Exactly. You know, he was honored. He was honored exactly. in the parliament. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. 
Actually, I have a. Um, oh, go ahead, Olga. Go ahead, love. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I, oh. I have. Since we're talking about you know people who have risked their lives and everything, David. Uh, when you were president of Freedom House, you were put on Putin's enemy list, along with Bill Browder. Okay, why were you put on that list? Um. Well, it, it may have actually come more formally later um, when President Trump met with President uh, Putin in Helsinki. Um, I I have not been back to Moscow since 2009 um, and have not had a desire to go back, even though I have a number of Russian friends uh, there. Yeah. And um, I, I did uh, help Bill, uh, Bill Browder, who uh, runs something called Hermitage Capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to be one of the, if not the biggest portfolio investor mm-hmm. in Russia uh, until Bill ran into some problems and the Russians revoked his visa, kicked him out, yeah. and then uh, arrested his accountant lawyer, uh, Sergei Magnitsky, who then was, was killed in prison. And Bill was behind a cause to pass legislation in memory of Magnitsky to try to hold Russian officials accountable for gross human rights abuses. And that seemed to me to be a a worthy, laudable cause, uh, Mm -hmm. which I then decided to support from my position at at Freedom House and uh, helped to try to persuade members of Congress that this was the right thing to do. I mentioned Senator Cardin before Senator yep. McCain played a key yep. role in this. Yes. Uh, Congressman McGovern mm-hmm. and uh, former Congresswoman Ileana Ross Layton and also played a very important role in passage of this legislation that passed by huge bipartisan majorities, yeah. 92 to 4 in the Senate, for example. Wow. So I, I, I've been outspoken uh, mm-hmm. in my criticism of, of the Putin regime. I have um, I supported that passage of that legislation. And then uh, when it came to the Helsinki summit, uh, remember, this was in the middle of the Mueller investigation. The Mueller investigation was looking at um, uh, the possibility of uh, criminality between Russians and people in the Trump campaign. Um, President Putin said he would agree to allow Russians whom Mueller was interested in talking to mm. be interrogated if President Trump agreed to allow, I think it was a list of 12 of us, uh, hmm. to be interrogated by Russian uh, uh, inspectors. Okay. And I was on that list. Um, uh, Mike McFall was on that list. Outrageous. Um, and, and a number of other people were too. And so I, I assume it was because of my association with uh, the Magnitsky legislation. Incredible. Uh, touching on Helsinki, because I have a question about that. I remember, I mean, I followed this very closely, you know, from, from the beginning, from when Trump decided to run. And at Helsinki, I mean, my blood was boiling. I can't even tell you the anger I felt. I, I probably the first time I yeah. cursed on Twitter. <laughs> um, Trump stood with Putin on the world stage and mm-hmm. took the side of Russian intelligence thugs over American intelligence and their attack. And they were still attacking America. I mean, the attack it's by crazy. no means is over. It's been happening. And he took Putin's side and Russian intelligence. People came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. I have great confidence in my 
intelligence people. But uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And what he did is an incredible offer. He offered to have the people working on the case come and work with their investigators with respect to the 12 people. I think that's an incredible offer. What were you thinking about that? <laughs> like, what was going what, through what, your head seeing an American president yeah. standing and taking yeah. the side of our adver- adversaries' intelligence yeah. services? Did that make you explode, David? <laughs> what happened to you? Well, you know, it wasn't our proudest moment, uh, no. to put it mildly. Um, you know, Fiona and I, Fiona Hill and I were, uh, she was a year behind me in graduate school and we, we've known each other for many years. And I think she, she has famously said she thought of, uh, feigning yes. illness, uh, passing out or going up and pulling a yeah. fire alarm or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it was not a good day to say the least. And, no. uh, that particular no. moment, uh, was, was, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty uh, bad time, I have to say. Um, that was not a great performance um, for President Trump. Um, I think it did uh, renew um, the concerns about his attitude toward Mr. Putin and what he had in mind with Russia. Yeah, to, to, to me, um, President Trump repeatedly asked the wrong question, and it was more of a rhetorical question on his part, but he kept saying, wouldn't it be great if we in Russia got along? And <laughs> the answer to that in an ideal world is yes, of course it would be great. But the, it's the wrong question to ask. The better question President Trump should have asked would have been, wouldn't it be great if we in Russia got along without having the U.S. sacrifice other countries in the region, our interests and our values? And the answer to that question is it's not going to happen. That's right. the only way we right. and the Putin regime could get along. Mm. And, and so I, I do think that he had a fundamental misunderstanding of the threat posed by, by Putin. Um, maybe he thought he could work with him. Um, it, Putin was one of, I guess there were a few leaders, but certainly stands out as a leader. Trump really never issued any criticism of whatsoever. No. Um, mm. And, um, uh, so, so it, yeah, it, it, it was it was a bad day, uh, to say the least. And I think people in the administration recognize that. Um, I don't think the president recognized that and, and won't to this day. No. Every single policy that Trump did, you know, was favorable to Putin in one way or another. His comments was always minimizing America or comparing America to Russia. I mean, when when mm, he was yeah. asked the famous question, like, do you think Putin is a murderer? I mean, oh, so are we. Like, who says this? No, right. <laughs> we don't go and kill journalists. We don't go and kill, you know, uh, opposition figures. Like, no, this no. is not who we are. So, I mean, that that thing, I agree, that summit was, I think, the, the final, like, you know, thing that <laughs> that was like the most blood boiling thing I've watched. So, so let me just make one comment on that. Um, I, I agree with what you've just said. And, and I think um, President Trump's solicitousness toward Putin really is striking. Um, mm-hmm. There was really nothing Putin could do that would elicit a, a, a condemnation from President Trump. That yeah. said, 
there were parts of his administration that did do some good things. And that's why there, there's such a baffling disconnect between Trump and his rhetoric and what his administration was doing. For example, the administration signed off on providing lethal military assistance to Ukraine. And the Obama administration, President Obama, refused to do that after Ukraine had been invaded in 2014. And <clears throat> just for your listeners to understand, Ukraine was not asking us to send troops to Ukraine to fight no. a battle with Russia. They were asking for the military means by which to defend themselves against this Russian threat. And Obama refused to do it. Trump administration did it. Um, they, they did beef up the U.S. military presence uh, in countries along Russia's border. They increased the export of liquefied natural gas, LNG, to the mm. region. They did mm. continue sanctions. Now, to be clear on sanctions, the Trump administration, in its very first week in office, the White House was trying to get sanctions lifted on yeah. Russian officials. And this was a major concern of a lot of us on the outside at the time, that there was an understanding that President Trump was with Putin, that he was going to come in and lift these sanctions. But the reaction at that time from key members of Congress, uh, mm. including Senator McCain, but I would also uh, remind everyone, Senator McConnell at that time spoke out very forcefully and very quickly to warn the White House against lifting sanctions as one of its first acts in office. And so the sanctions stayed in place. They were not implemented aggressively. But there were some additional sanctions, um, not enough in my view. But uh, so that's why th th there, there's just a baffling disconnect between what Trump himself was saying and doing and what the administration was doing. He's and doing the result of that was not a policy, but dysfunction and chaos mm -hmm. because no one could figure out what was what. what and Putin, I think, was. obviously felt that as long as he had Trump's ear and support, it didn't particularly matter what other people in the administration were doing as long as he could persuade Trump to, to be friendly and stay on his side. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Fiona Hill saying, in fact, that there were two, it was sort of like two um, lines in foreign policy, one that Trump had and the other one that the administration or the, let's say the secretary of state and all of state had. Uh, working in the, in the Pentagon. You know, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, yeah. I, I think that's right, Monique. I, I think there, there was just a huge disconnect here. Um, I just think Trump didn't know what was going on. <laughs> People were like, oh, yes, we could do what we need to do. Yeah, I, I, and we do whatever we want to. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. I think that may be the case when it comes when it comes to the signing off of lethal military assistance. Ukraine. Yeah. There, there's another example I can cite. You know, we we've, we've touched on the Skripal poisoning. This again was mm -hmm. uh, Sergei Skripal, a former KGB officer um, who um, fled and was living in Salisbury, England, and and was nearly killed by. Uh, polonium that had been uh, spread on the apparently the doorknob of of his home. Novichok, uh, Novichok, yep. and yep. Um, uh, so uh, in response to that, uh, a number of European countries expelled a number of Russian diplomats, and and the NSC uh, staff, presumably Fiona Hill, whom we've mentioned, and mm -hmm. others, um, uh, uh, got agreement that the U.S. would expel 60 Russian diplomats, which was wow, more than any other country that. by far. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And after this was announced and after he realized nobody else came close to that number, Trump apparently was furious uh, that mm. the United States had taken yeah. such a step. 
Yeah. Uh, to me, it was the right thing to do. Um, oh. And and yet uh, he he was upset that he had been talked into doing it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's just very fishy. It's fishy. I think it's fishy. But we're talking about response, David. Okay. And we know that Putin's modus operandi is escalating, 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 pushing those red lines that we hear, okay, so much about. Why do you think in the West, okay, they haven't taken any decisive action at any point to stop all of this, okay, um, this escalation? Because this is what we're seeing. And it's extremely frustrating, right, for normal citizens to see that pretty much he gets away with everything. Why do we have such a weak response from the West? Like, when do we finally stand up to all of this? When is enough enough? Right? That's a so good one, question. What's I don't the know response? the answer to that. Yeah. You know, that's, um, we keep I asking mean, ourselves as well. But, you know, and, and just for your listeners, it, just to be clear, we're, we're talking about, yes, the the games that Putin and the Kremlin are playing when it comes to delivery of gas in Europe, which is really driving up the price of gas in, in, in the European continent. Um, and, and this is, unfortunately, it's been abetted by the Germans with the completion of construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which unfortunately the Biden administration uh, issued mm -hmm. waivers on sanctions that were yeah. congressionally mandated. Yeah. Um, it, it comes in the form of, of uh, cyber attacks and ransomware attacks. And let's remind our viewers again yeah. that it's about the colonial pipeline that disrupted energy flows in the United States. We're not talking about Europe. Yes. We're talking about the United States. Cyber attacks yep. and yep. ransomware attacks against hospitals in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, um, a, a child died because absolutely. of that. I mean, th this we're talking about hostile acts that if carried out by pretty much any other country yeah. would have yeah. been deemed an act of war. Exactly. Um, and you're right that we really have not done much of anything until um, 2014 when Sanctions were imposed in response to Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea and then military invasion of uh, eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region. But the problem, uh, and then there were additional sanctions that the Obama administration imposed in December 2016, as was on its way out the door for interference in the election. Um, but we're too slow um, mm. and we don't understand the need to keep ramping up the, the pressure. Uh, the, an article just came out in the Washington Post as a result of the release of these Pandora papers that That's right. um, yeah. indicates yep. that the sanctions have had an impact, hasn't necessarily changed the behavior of the Kremlin, but have made life more difficult for Russia's oligarchs, the people close to Putin who depend on him for the billions of ill-gotten uh, gains that they make. And so... Um, I I don't think any of us wants to go to war with Russia, but no. we have to understand that unless we push back and impose serious consequences on the Putin yes. regime, including, I would argue, Mr. Putin himself, there aren't bank accounts with Vladimir Putin's name on them. But no, we, we have exactly. a good sense of who's keeping his money for yes. safekeeping. Unless we do that, um, this kind of stuff is going to continue. President Biden in his meeting in, in um, uh, Geneva um, said uh, he'll give Putin six months. Well, it's uh, the clock is ticking. And the cyber That's attacks, right. while they have not been getting as much attention, 
from what I can tell, have been continuing. And uh, the ransomware attacks as well. Yep. And I don't know if we've done much of anything in response. There, there was one uh, hacking group that went dark, but the suspicion is it went dark on its own, not because of any U.S. action. And came back. And, and came back. W- meanwhile, we're, we're sitting down with the Russians, engaging in talks on strategic stability. Um, and uh, John Kerry has traveled there to <laughs> seek right. collaboration, cooperation on climate change. And the thing is, you know, Lavrov and Putin know how to wrap carry around their yeah. finger. And um, the, the, the admit, if I can just back up for a second, um, uh, President Biden, I think, in his administration got off to a good start with with dealing with Putin, um, with imposition of two rounds of sanctions, with uh, uh, Putin, with Biden uh, saying yes when asked directly whether he thought Putin was a killer. Um, and support for for the other countries in the region. But then, as Putin was building up military forces along the border with Ukraine, yeah. something changed. And yeah. the White House either panicked or whatever the case may be and invited okay. Putin to a summit. When you, If I were in the White House, I would not have advised rewarding Putin with a summit because of his military buildup along the border with Ukraine. Yeah. There was also concern, let's keep in mind, that uh, the Russian opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, who had been poisoned by Putin's mm-hmm. agents last summer, um, was on his deathbed in prison after he yes. returned to Moscow mm-hmm. January mm-hmm. 17th and was thrown in jail immediately. So so the concern about Navalny, the concern about uh, a renewed invasion of Ukraine prompted the White House to go, in my view, soft and invite Putin to a, meet, a summit in, in Geneva. And mm-hmm. ever since, it seems, the White House has has pulled back from its harder line in dealing with Putin. And I think it's a mistake. Um, and I hope that when the time period ends that, that President Biden said he would give Putin, that we take some really tough measures. I'm not yeah. convinced we will. The White House and the National Security Council in particular seems obsessed with China. That's not necessarily a wrong thing, but we ignore Putin uh, yeah. Yeah. at our own peril. And that's what I fear is happening now. Putin has an yeah. uncanny ability to remind us of the trouble he can create. And it's better to try to head it off before it happens. So let's take a quick break. This episode is sponsored by Policy Genius. The holidays are upon us, love. And you know what? There's a lot of people that are looking for life insurance, home insurance, Uh, But they really just don't have the time now to sit in front of a computer and do that kind of thing. But Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. And that amounts to something like even up to 1,300 or more per year. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies. So you could trust them to help navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. And eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week, right? Thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical examination requirement for a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was rated recently number one by Forbes advisor, higher than options from Ladder, Ethos, and Besto. That's right. When you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. 
Policy Genius doesn't wow. add any extra fees. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. David, what is your advice to Biden? Let's say you have five minutes with Biden and you say, look, you know, points one, two, three, and four. Can you give us, okay, what your advice would be? I mean, I've read your op-ed in Politico, which was brilliant. And we'll be making sure that our listeners you know get to that op-ed. But can you give us, okay, some points that you would like to you know, uh, make known to the administration? Sure. Well, thanks for that. And and, and let me just say on, on the specific issue of cyber before I get to, you mm-hmm. know, what five points I would, I would stress. Um, President Biden said that the United States has greater capabilities than any other country in the world when it comes to cyber. And I think that's right. Um, either we are holding back or we're doing things so covertly that, that no one knows about them, except maybe some <laughs> targets in Russia. It could be. Yeah. Um, I, hope I, so. I think it's unlikely um, because yeah. I think it, it's, this is not unique to the Biden administration. Administrations before have this aversion, understandably, to the concern about escalation. Um, this was President Obama's um, excuse for not providing lethal military assistance to Ukraine, for example. He mm. worried that Russia would escalate in response mm. to that. By the way, when the Trump administration did provide lethal military assistance, Russia did not escalate. So that concern right. proved to have been unfounded. Um, but yes, on, on, on cyber and ransomware attacks, uh, we're going to keep getting hit unless we hit back really, really hard. And uh, I, I think we have the capability to do that. And at some point, we have to decide Putin is not going to act on his own. Uh, it, it, the, the argument, the Kremlin argument, well, these are private actors. Yeah. We don't control no. them. In sense, Putin has created this environment in which this kind of activity at a minimum is condoned, if not encouraged. Um, so I think we have to get much tougher and more serious on this. On, on the five points, one is let's recognize the threat that Putin poses. One, to his own people, uh, two, to his neighbors, um, three, to us and our way of life and the democratic system. Um, He is interested in staying in power as his number one objective. His number two objective is staying in power. And guess what his number three objective is? Staying in power. power. He will do whatever is necessary to achieve that goal. He's not interested, uh, I would say, to President Biden in predictability and stability, as the White House has uh, used this phrase in seeking better relations with Russia. In fact, he depends on unpredictability and creating instability. It's important to understand that unlike a normal Western leader, Putin wants to destabilize his neighbors, specifically Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova, even Mm -hmm. Belarus, so that these countries have no hope and prospect of joining NATO and the European Union or thriving as democratic states. Successful democracies along Russia's borders are inimical to Putin's interests. He does not want to see what he would view as a threatening alternative, particularly in a country like Ukraine, a fellow Slavic nation. Um, And so he will invade it. He will try to destabilize it. He will uh, feed into the corruption, which is a problem in a number of these countries, yeah. um, and and he will pose a threat to them. Um, we don't have anything in common when it comes to values. We yep. have very little in common when it comes to interests. Mm-hmm. And so coming to grips with this reality that 
Putin is a threat and needs to be dealt with accordingly. Again, I'm not calling for war with Russia. No. I don't know of anyone no. who is. No. But it's the old Trotsky line. You may not want war, but war may want you. Um, if we if we continue to let Putin get away with these things, as we were talking about earlier in our conversation, um, he will continue to escalate. Exactly. And unless we provide him with a good reason that escalation is dangerous to him and his mm-hmm. interests, we'll keep doing it. So uh, to me, taking a tougher line, we shouldn't be paralyzed by concern that if we get tougher with Russia, we're going to drive it into China's hands. Yeah. David, it was a real, real pleasure speaking with you today. Okay. Thanks very thank much for having you. me. I enjoyed no, it. Thank I you appreciate for it very much. Thank you. Yes, thank that's you. Right. Thank we you. Need to, thank we you. need people who are more, you know, like forthright, because a lot of people don't like to talk about, you know, this and be as direct. They always kind of walk Skirt the line. Around. I'm like, we're in a war right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we're we're yeah. under attack. We need people who can tell us what's happening, not just exactly. You know, say, we'll see how well, it is, maybe. right, Olga? Yeah, which is being truthful yeah. with people because people need to see what reality actually is, not what yep. others would mm-hmm. like it to be. So this is yeah. actually extremely important to get this information out there in a very clear way. Okay, without dressing yeah. it up in rhetoric and the whole business. So no. yes, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Okay, David. Thank you very Thank much. You so Appreciate much. it. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is season one, Kremlin Fine, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monica Mata. This is a Bunker Crew Media production with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant Disney, Ben Brett, and Jordy Mycellus of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Franco and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>